willing to take on all of that weight of being the other, being outside of our context and building relationships. Like if we're willing to, to move into that gap, well then, you know, we might see some progress. That's the same thing we're asking them to do. Welcome to the Missing Voices Project. My name is Justin Forbes, and this podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. I'm convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So, with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. Let's get into it. Jake Fuller, thank you for coming on the Missing Voices Project podcast. Hello, are you there? I'm here. Hello. It's good to be here. Oh, hello. Hi, Tyler. (laughs) Okay, so I I feel like we should just start with a confession for everyone. We were roommates in college. For a long time. For a a long time. Uh, We had many different roommates. Some lived on couches on our front porch. Others lived in closets. Uh, we did the whole college thing and it was great. That's right. You know, while we're, while we're confessing things, we weren't Uh-oh. just college roommates. We lived together <laughs> when we were married. If you remember that. I do remember that. We did an intentional community year. Uh, it, what's wonderful about that is we decided at the end of that first year, having both been newlyweds, we agreed to not do that again. Um, but I feel like that's a whole nother episode of a very different podcast. So... <laughs> All right, Tyler, let's get into it. So Tyler graduated from Flagler College in 2002, uh, was a youth ministry student here at Flagler, and went on to Asbury Theological Seminary. He's got over 10 years of youth ministry experience, and he's now the associate pastor of missions at Cross Point Church, which is one of those United Methodist churches that took the old school name off the front and became a slick new rebranded thing, right? Isn't aren't you guys one of those secret Methodist churches? Yeah, we are. Everything I do is slick, and the church is no different. We're all very slick. And uh, <laughs> to make it clear, I'm also a, a reverend, and I'm very important. So that's why you should be listening to me. Ooh, just gonna establish my okay, well, Let me. Here. Yeah, let me change my tone of voice, Reverend. Um, very good. Well, so uh, we're, we're talking to you today because throughout your experience in youth ministry and at the church, uh, you have sort of found yourself in two very particular places of interest in a ministry that I have loved watching and learning from you about. And that is, uh, in particular, working with poor folks, working alongside uh, people that are trying to address poverty in different ways, but also uh, working in the foster care system and as a foster parent and as a uh, an advocate in the community and someone who's working in that space, you and your wife both um, working in that space in different ways. And so I would love to just hear, you know, how did you find yourself, you know, growing and moving into those spaces? I mean, those are very 
distinct spaces uh, to be imagining ministry. And part of what we want to hear from you today is a little bit of what that's been like and, and what that means to you. So how in the world did you find yourself working uh, around poverty and around foster care? So not, not everybody has this, but I've always had a very clear sense of calling. Um, ministry as a vocation is the only thing I've ever pursued as a job since I was a teenager, really. And so, you know, my life track has always been aimed at ministry uh, and specifically youth ministry. I couldn't imagine doing anything else uh, for the longest time since feeling called all the way through college. It's, it's the reason I chose Flagler because they had this, this youth ministry program. And so that's always been the direction I've been going, uh, ministry in general. And then uh, early on, I kind of fell in love with youth ministry and just started doing it. Uh, and, and as soon as I started doing youth ministry as a job, I kind of learned that I'm an introvert and I'm into uh, weird stuff or whatever. And so I kind of learned early on in youth ministry that I gravitated towards you know kids who are not bringing a whole bunch of other kids to group and kids who are kind of like, more difficult to relate to or just, you know, weird kids. And those are the kind of kids that, that ended up, you know, in my group, I've always kind of gravitated towards kids on the fringes for whatever reason. And that naturally led me because of my ministry context, especially my first five to eight years of youth ministry, my ministry context was directly involved uh, with kids who were facing issues of poverty. And the, the more I built relationships with kids in those situations, the more I kind of fell in love with the work and just felt like, this is the thing I'm supposed to do. Having no experience and no knowledge and no idea what I'm supposed to do, I just really felt like that was the thing that I was built to do. Uh, hmm. And so, you know, that probably happened in my first five or six years of, of doing youth ministry. And I really haven't stopped. My context has changed, but I haven't stopped pursuing those general ideas ever since then, which is a clean dovetail into, into how we ended up in the foster care world. Um, my wife and I have always known that we wanted to adopt, uh, even when we were dating as teenagers, she's, my wife is my high school sweetheart. Uh, we, we knew that adoption would be part of our story. And so at the time in our life, when it, when it became time to pursue adoption, we just assumed that international adoption is what we would do because that was a, just kind of a really hot thing in church culture at the time. And it seemed like Mm -hmm. the best thing to do, um, which it is Uh, international adoption is a great thing to do, but we pursued it. And we really just felt a very clear stop. Like this is a great thing that we're not called to do, even though mm-hmm. it was what we wanted to do. And so we felt stuck in that way. And we, we started pursuing uh, domestic adoption, private domestic adoption as our second option and got to the same exact point where we did all the work and we met an agency and we were ready. But we just felt like we were not in the right place that, you know, we were on the right track, but this wasn't the right fit for us. And so mm-hmm. knowing nothing about the foster care community and, and having no experience at all, uh, again, like you, you can, I'm going to sound way more spiritual than I am on this thing, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, my wife and I were kind of stuck. We knew we were called to adoption and we, we had pursued these other two options and, and felt like they weren't right for us. Uh, my wife literally had a, like a moment, uh, in a church service where she just heard from the Lord that foster care was what we should be doing. I did not hear from the Lord at that time. <laughs> It took me, you know, uh, a, a while of processing. Um, but as soon as I promised her that I'd be open to the idea, and as soon as I was open to it, it just became as clear as it could be that, that that's what we were meant to be doing with our family. And so we started as foster parents, and then we've adopted a bunch of kids through the foster care system. 
And the deeper we get in the child welfare system, the more it's become kind of an integrated part of our ministry as well, both at the church and in our in our personal lives. It's not just that we're parenting these kids that we love uh, and have adopted, but it's that uh, we really feel like there's a need uh, not being met in the foster care circles that we have some knowledge and skills to to try to address as the church. And so, right. Because at this point, my my job, I'm a missions pastor. It just it's it was just waiting to be you know integrated into the life of the church. And so, the deeper we got into foster care, and the more we saw about what was happening and how it was happening, the more sense it made just to kind of roll that into what we're doing. And now my wife is getting a master's of social work and plans to kind of turn her vocation from teaching in the past towards uh, something in the social welfare system. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's not like an, uh, an integral part of what we're doing in missions here. So, you know, yeah. you could track this all life doesn't work this way, but you could track this all on a continuum and just see how uh, I and we have kind of been led from a general call into this specific space we're in. It's really beautiful in that way. Yeah. Well, I, okay. It's really tempting to just jump into a bunch of things where you're at right now, but I want to go back to this you know, you didn't grow up mm-hmm. in poverty yourself right. or in foster care yourself. You came out of a middle upper class, you know, white suburban family, um, highly educated parents, yeah. you know, like that was a big part of you, who you were growing up. Mm-hmm. And somehow at some point you had this turn towards, um, you know, high school kids, I guess at the time who were not from the same sort of background. I, I, I kind of want to, ask you to like, you know, how did that happen? Yeah. Like, yeah. What, what took you there that started you on this path of becoming more aware of things like poverty? And then, you know, as it continued more specifically into the foster care world. So mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about the roots of all that. Yeah. So I think for, for both Leslie and I, it really started with this sense of like, uh, regardless of my background and I'm, I'm from a, you know, a very homogeneous uh, middle-class town and middle-class background, but regardless of all that, just I've always had um, the things that keep me up at night for my whole life have always been like issues of justice and how to make things right that aren't right. That's just kind of built into my blood. And mm-hmm. uh, as I started doing student ministry, I think that that instinct to try and pursue making things right and justice and equality, that instinct mm-hmm. started to just naturally play out Uh in dealing with with high schoolers especially at that time uh who were in poverty but the thing that was tough that i'm still dealing with because i'm not from a background of poverty i uh i didn't even know what foster care was when i started pursuing foster care like to do it um so it's just way outside of of my experience one of the toughest things for me to overcome that this is common uh is that the gap between my experience and my knowledge and all of the frameworks that I use to build my life and think about things, there's such a wide gap between that and the folks that we're working alongside of and with who are from uh, issues of poverty related or, or the foster care system. You know, you, you think like, well, if I could just, if they knew the things I knew about, you know, uh, being on a cash envelope system and saving money, well, then they'd be saving money. But that just starts like 20 steps ahead of where, uh, people are who are actually like in the grind and trying to figure out their lives uh, in the middle of, of poverty. And so, you know, there's like, t- I don't really want to tell these stories because they're embarrassing, but it's also, you don't want to glorify this sort of like outsider savior thing, but there are right. so many blunders uh, on my part as I just tried to learn how to build relationships with people 
who are from backgrounds that are so different than mine. You know, you mm. talk about a 20 year old kid who's never really been immersed in a, a community that, that, that has with the effects of poverty. And all of a sudden, like I'm going all in. You can imagine the sort of dumb things I said <laughs> and thought and all of the great solutions I had that were ridiculous, you know. Why don't they just do this? Yeah. Yeah. Why they, yeah, didn't yeah. they hear me say that this will cause this and everything is fine? Man, I'm surprised not everybody had it figured out like you, Tyler. <laughs> yeah. You know, my whole life I've been surprised at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh okay, so you know, you go all in in some of these communities and you're uh you know, trying to lovingly be there but you're also making all these mistakes i mean you had this impulse to go in and and to move into that direction but you know how did you what did it look like for you to grow and to learn and become more aware i mean obviously you're doing that sadly at at others expense Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as you make some of these mistakes but you do that humbly and and you know asking for forgiveness along the way i mean i know you well enough to know that yeah yeah I mean, what did that look like for you to grow in in your understanding? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do think it's it's fair to say that like other people bore the burden of my ignorance and my misunderstanding and this this cultural gap. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, I I'm glad that that this sense of justice that I had pushed me into these areas that stretched me and made me different. I'm glad that I didn't like experience this sort of wide gap and say, oh, I can't do this. Instead, like right. I go in, make a bunch of mistakes, and have to continually for the rest of my life course correct over and over to try to answer the question like how do I do this faithfully? What are the what are the ways in which we can deal with with issues of poverty well that are effective and that are um, that are Christ centered? You know, how do we do that? Even now, you know, like I'm not an expert in this, but at any given time in my life, you know, I'm reading like one graphic novel, which is like a fancy way of saying a comic book and like one, <laughs> one regular novel that just is escapism that I enjoy stories. And then one book that's directly about issues of poverty. So like, mm-hmm. you know, here I am s- still in the grind trying to do this work and I don't know what I'm doing now. And so right. if, if, if issues of poverty or the, or the sort of issues that get kids removed from their home, if there are easy issues to fix, well, we'd fix them. You know, it'd be done. And <laughs> right. If like a cash infusion solved poverty, there's enough generous people in the world that would just infuse the cash and we'd solve it. Um, mm-hmm. But if you want to take the issues seriously and try to find uh, ways forward that are appropriate, it just means like constantly figuring out what's right and what's good and what's best and what's effective. And it's like a moving mm-hmm. target. And so I mm-hmm. feel I don't feel much different now than I felt when I was 20. Like. I know I'm right. called to this and that, that, you know, like the Lord requires it of me. And I also know that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm, I'm going to stick in here and do my best. Right. Well, I think that sounds like any good education. You know, you learn, you learn, you learn, you grow, you grow, you grow, and you end up recognizing how much more there is to learn and how much you just don't know. So yeah. in some ways, that's just evidence of maturity and actual learning, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, in other ways, it keeps you humble and it forces you to remain the student forever, which is like a wonderful way to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, I've talked with you about the grant that we got here, uh, the Missing Voices Project, and this project that we have before us to work with 12 congregations. I think you're touching one of the nerves that I've already run up against talking to youth ministers that, 
you know, gosh, I want to move towards young people with disabilities, or I want to move towards uh, poor kids or kids that live in group homes that are in foster care. But like the gap between my uh, understanding and my ability to navigate that space and the desire to do so is just too big. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's been so interesting. I don't know why I was surprised, Tyler. Like it's been it's been a sort of a surprising, just uh, dis- not discourage. I mean, maybe discouraging on some level, but like, of course, this is really hard. Of course, this is uh, difficult for youth ministers to imagine doing. And so, in some ways, like the very need or the necessity of this project, of the Missing Voices project, in the first place, um, has been made clear again and again as I talk to youth ministers who have great intentions and great desires. But the the reality between here and there just seems to be too big. So yeah. somehow you you know you didn't like jump that gap um, as if it weren't there, but you began to wade into it. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about you know people that want to try and take a step in that direction. What does that look like? Yeah, well, I think you know by way of encouragement to to folks who are listening to this who are in the project or thinking about reaching out. Um, in some ways, it shows a sense of thoughtfulness that they recognize this gap and it's it's scary. You know, yeah. if you had a bunch of uh, men and women doing ministry who just are like, oh, I finally found an issue. I'm going to jump in there and fix it. Well, to me, that's a lot <laughs> more concerning than folks that are like, yeah, how do I jump over this giant gap? Um, yeah. So confidence might be a disqualifier. <laughs> yeah. You know, you see it all the time. And people have unmet expectations and discouragement because they don't realize the, the gap. And so if you're in a place where you feel that tension already, you're in a good place to start because you're going to be humble and have to learn. Like, I'm still in the gap now, you know, after 10 years of student ministry and a bunch of years of missions and outreach and poverty related stuff, you know, mm-hmm. I'm still living in that gap, uh, which is a good place to be. Uh, we talked to a church in a big city uh, a couple hours away from us, uh, just trying to do some training about missions and outreach. And, and so this church is like, you know, in the space that a lot of churches are in right now where the building has stayed stable, like in the same place and the community around the building has changed drastically to where mm-hmm. the congregation is driving in from half an hour outside of town. And, you know, like the neighborhood that surrounds the church is vastly different than the context the church was built in. And so, these the these guys at this church that were they chatting with us are like well you know we recognize the gap between who we are and our culture and our neighbors our our actual neighbors you know what are we supposed to do and I'm like well I don't know like go hang out at the school and start building relationships and meet the first person that's friendly to you and chat with them and take them to lunch and to you know all of this is centered on building relationships and somebody from that group was like. Yeah, but you know, isn't it going to be awkward? There's there's so much different than us, and aren't we just going to be standing around quietly? And I'm like, well, you might be, but isn't that the experience that we're asking them to take by coming into our churches? Like, hey, you're wildly <laughs> different. Come on in and feel weird, and we'll feel better about ourselves. You know, if right. if we're oh willing gosh. to take on all of that weight of being the other, being outside of our context, and building relationships, like if we're willing to to move into that gap. Well, then, you know, we might see some progress. It's the same thing we're asking them to do. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, by the way, us and them, that's not great language, but it does highlight the issue, right, that I'm trying to explain. Well, it's definitely the way that we experience it. Sure. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think that it's a false dichotomy that falls down pretty quickly, but it it's how it feels, especially in the beginning. So, Well, even in, in what you might call a typical youth ministry situation, you might get a parent who wants to volunteer 
and they show up to their first, whatever your student ministry meeting looks like, they show up to their first one and they're like, how do I talk to these teenagers? You know, like, <laughs> I know this is good and I know I want to do it, but what do I do? You know, it's the same sort of feeling that, that you experience all the time. Right, right. So what you're saying is uh, be willing to embrace these sort of uncomfortable experience in order to get to know and to try and understand or have insight to the other person. Yeah. And if someone's going to feel weird, like let it be you and don't stop because it feels weird because you won't make any relational ground if you're not willing to kind of step in and stand around and stay there for a while. And the longer you do that, the easier it is because now you're not talking about this community that's around us. You're talking about these people that we know. Well, and I think part of this too, Tyler, I, I think that there is a, a bit of a theological assumption at play that we could, that I feel confident about, uh, in that there's going to be a gift in the other person yeah. that I just don't even know what it is yet. Yeah. And that within this, uh, move towards the other move towards the neighbor, um, even when it's an unknown person or an unknown context, I think part of this is that we have to choose hope mm-hmm. when we move in that direction and, and anticipate that we will experience Christ in that place, in that person, in those people. And that helps color mm-hmm. our sort of uh, our approach or our willingness. Is that oh, I mean, what yeah, do you think yeah. about that? No, that, that sort of starting from that place theologically kind of tears down all of these ideas of like we are built differently than them and God has called us to go to them and fix them or whatever. All of Mm -hmm. that falls apart when you realize that like, well, we're both built from the same dust and we're both empowered by the same Holy Spirit and they have gifts that are like mine in different contexts and I'm missing out on the gifts that they have to offer because I don't have relationship. They're missing out on the gifts that we have to offer because of this uh, gap in relationship. You know, we're not, we're not there yet, but you call this like a teaser for, for content later. That's the same sort of theology that informs the sort of structures that our church uses as it relates to working in poverty, right? So we're not trying to use church resources to fix issues of poverty as if like we have what these other communities need and all they need is for us to apply our stuff to their stuff and things are fixed. That really degrades a a population of people who themselves are gifted and God has given, you know, uh, all sorts of abilities and knowledge and skills to. And so any any uh, program that's focused on issues of poverty that doesn't utilize and recognize the human potential of people that are in poverty is just theologically off base. It makes work slow and it makes it difficult and it makes results, especially for, you know, uh, middle class and rich folks that are trying to do this. It makes it all more more frustrating, but it's also just right to recognize that we all have the same sort of giftings and abilities and God-given stuff. Right, right. Yeah, even though it seems like that might be helpful for us to apply our stuff to your problem, mm-hmm. it, it just reinforces the, the distance between yeah. us uh, when we do that. So, you know, part of our, our working assumption here with the Missing Voices Project is that there are young people on the margins of society and on the margins of church uh, that will have something to offer or that we will learn something or that we'll experience Christ in a way in and through those young people on the margins. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll experience Christ in a way that we would not have experienced Christ anywhere else. So there's something to be learned, to be gleaned, to be enjoyed, to be celebrated at the margins that wouldn't exist anywhere else. And I, I want you to think about that sort of hypothesis maybe. 
and imagine your experience of working with kids in poverty or in the foster care system. I mean, how how have you experienced the presence of God in those spaces in ways that maybe you would not have experienced elsewhere? Or or refute the whole thing and tell me I'm an idiot. I mean, like no, just no. That's beautiful. <laughs> Who would tell you you're an idiot on that? You know, I could list a few people, but go ahead. <laughs> They're not listening to your podcast, though. When I'm not going to interview them. <laughs> um, you know, that's like a, that question hits home for me because you're talking about a guy who like, you know, my family is built of people who would have otherwise been other to us. And to imagine what my family would be without these kids who are my kids, like it's, it's unimaginable. Like everything about them is beautiful and wonderful and they're brilliant and they're resilient and they're, you know, like they're great. And, and so just their presence in, in my own family makes my family better. Like all of us are better because wow. we've included these kids that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And that's not like we didn't save these kids. Like there's a million people who could have raised them and loved them. And the Lord loves them more than we would ever love them. But the fact that we had the chance to say yes uh, and open our home, our home is better for it. Like they bring gifts that we wouldn't otherwise have. And so like, Every day when I go home, I'm aware of this fact that, you know, my, my biological kids are fantastic and I love them just as much as I love anyone in the world. Like I love my, my biological kids, but I do think my family unit is healthier and holier and, and has access to things that, that maybe other families might not have access to because we've done this, uh, this thing that stretched us and, and, and brought new people in. So that's something to me, like I go to sleep reaping the benefits of, of that sort of theology every single day. Right. And as it relates and, to, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, just so people know, you have two biological children and four adopted through foster care. That's correct. correct. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so uh, you've got your brood of six children that you're uh, managing with your monster van that you guys got. And somehow you said that somehow there are things and gifts, uh, there are things that are happening or experiences or gifts that are taking place because those kids are there and they, and they, you know, naturally would not have been there. Yeah. I mean, what, say more about that, like name it. Yeah. What is, what is that experience or the gift that those, what would have been missing voices within your family, name the gift that they've brought or the the change or I don't know. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, part of it, part of it is that they are family, like just their presence is a gift to us because like, Family is the greatest thing in the world. Like we're we're like the home base for all community, and, and our home base has been expanded to include these these kids that are wonderful. Like just having that extra presence in itself fundamentally makes our kind of community home base, our family, uh, that much more beautiful. But in terms of like practical experience, you know, I think that both my wife and I would probably tend towards sheltering our kids in general. You know, in terms of like what they watch or or what their input is or even what they know about how the world works. But Mm -hmm. sheltering is not an instinct that's functional uh, when you've opened your family to to foster care. So like we everyone at the table knows that people at the table have different dads. So there's no way to not talk about, you know, sex and biology and DNA and, you know, what's inherent. Yeah. what, What traits are inherent and what traits come from family. Those are conversations that we were pushed into earlier than we would have been, but we were also doing the things we should be doing with our family. Like those are conversations families need to have. Um, and so right. we've seen that play out a million ways that 
that it's not just the our our adopted kids and their personality, which is a gift to us, but also their experience of how they came in forces our family to know that there are kids who don't have homes and to know that oh those kids are actually also really beautiful and brilliant and to know like that that when we open our family and our community expands it's not that we you know people hate on six kids and you know how come every kid doesn't get enough attention or how do you do traveling baseball <laughs> with six kids or whatever but i'm telling you like we have a vibrant large community at our house and it's brilliant and it's beautiful and it's you know it is not the same as if we had one or two kids but it inherently does something like magical to our family that, that's great yeah that's good i do think though there's an, an answer to that question what do we gain from working on the margins for the church as well so like all this stuff about foster care that i just went through that's like a personal answer where i myself reap the benefits uh of interacting with folks who are on the margins but i can tell you like so i the church i work at is you know we're a, a, a big evangelical mega church in the south but it's also the church that i myself was baptized in and i went to sunday school here and youth group like it's it's been my home church forever mm-hmm. and one thing that's absolutely true there's like a 10-year gap in my experience at the church where i left to go to college and then came back as a staff person 10 years later and in that 10 years, our church started actively focusing on uh, poor folks in our community and just trying to do mission work well. And in that 10-year gap where they first started really doing that in a way that, that you know, they just trying, uh, the, the culture of the church really fundamentally changed. You know, the church that I left when I, when I graduated high school, I would have called it like stuffy and, and homogeneous, and it was missing a lot in terms of the experience of, of regular people. But when I came back 10 years later and they had first started really trying to reach out, like it just didn't feel that way anymore. And it's not because we were trying to go out to these other people in the community. It's that because naturally, as we started to build relationships, folks that were not like us came into the church. And so mm-hmm. we had to say, okay, maybe like a suit and tie is not the most important thing because it makes these people feel awkward who wouldn't be here otherwise. Or mm-hmm. maybe the way we talk, we, one of our preachers tells a story about, he was using an example about housing and he's like, you know, trying to help people think about being generous. And he's like, everybody wants a bigger house and everybody wants this or that. And he looks out and on the front row, there's three people we know that live in trailers. He's like, well, I don't know if they want a bigger house. I don't even know if, if what they call what they're living in is a house, mm-hmm. but that's something that we might not have ever been aware of. Had we not, mm-hmm reached out in a sudden in a relational way that kind of caused folks uh to feel open to coming to us and so yeah our yeah. church is a better and healthier and holier church because doing this sort of work on the margins has allowed folks from the margins to feel a part of our community and it's complicated and messy and it's like what the church should look like well and as you're saying that i'm, I'm my um sensibilities about being too white, uh, middle-class guys talking on the phone about this, those red flags go up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware that we run the risk of talking about foster care is great because these kids bring this to our family or working with poor folks are great because they helped our church become better. Mm -hmm. And what what I think you're saying, I don't think you're saying those things. I think part of what you're trying to say is that the center moved yeah and like that's there's it. not there's not so much a you know they came to us and then that helped us become better it's that the center of gravity 
moves when you begin to imagine and understand and see each other with new eyes. Yeah. Um, It's not even that they came to us so we're better. It's like all of a sudden they are us as it should be. You know, like this – there's this guy that we've been working with for a super long time. We have like a a long-term class that tries to help people using their own gifts and abilities uh, break chains of generational poverty. Beautiful program uh, that I I really love. We have a guy who went through that program, uh, and we didn't know him before he signed up to do this with us. We met him as part of this class. And at the end of the class, you know, this is like he puts in 12 months, and he does this hard work, and he has all these – people coming alongside him and he sets his own goals and tries to meet them. And it's like the whole thing is, is really neat. And at the end of the program, I remember thinking like, this is probably four years ago. I remember thinking like, I'm so glad this guy came through the program, but I look at his life and there's literally no difference in his life between the day he joined the program. And now like he is not less poor, which is exactly what I want to see is like, I want him to have the access to the things he needs. The difference for him was that, being part of this program made him feel a part of this community. And so now like he's an usher and he's here every time the doors are open and he's like a part of our worshiping community and everyone knows him. And so like, yeah, we didn't change his life circumstances, which I still want to do. But if you ask, (laughs) if you, I'm solution oriented here. If you asked him, like, what did the program do for you? He'd be like, well, I found a church that I can love and that loves me and I'm a part of a community. And that might be a bigger win, even though to me it's still frustrating. Do you know, does that make sense? Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that begs the question, how do we think about success? Yeah. You know, how do we talk about things like goals or what does faithful ministry look like? And I, I mean, I think sadly in youth ministry, the trap is going to be something like, well, did you take, you know, how many kids went to camp in the summer or on your mission trip or how many kids do you have on a Wednesday night or something like that? And I just think that by the very nature of working with kids at the margins, those metrics are just not going to work, <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know? And so in the same way, like you're, you're having this class on generational poverty, like that's a big, big deal. Like we're talking about generations of, you know, like creating a trajectory. And so a 12 month class probably won't help this whole thing turn on a dime. And I, and I wonder, I mean, like, I just don't know. I, there's a part of me that says, well, is the goal that he would not be in poverty? Well, like part of me thinks immediately, like, well, yes, you uh-huh. know, um, but maybe it's just maybe having one goal is the wrong way to think, you know, like maybe providing a sense of community and a place of belonging uh, that would be faithful to the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah. That, that to me might be just as important. Now I say that as someone who is not worried about where my next meal is going to come from though. Uh So, you know, in a very real way, uh, the poverty piece of that matters as much. I, this is where I run out of my shoes. I don't know. Uh, No, this is like a throwback to, to the conversation we kind of started on about this gap, right? So like, yeah, yes. All of us who are helping run, this is like a research based program and it's like a national thing. And, it's 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 strategies and the way it works has data to say that it does work and our goal is exactly what you said like i want to see people who are poor become less poor using their god-given gifts and abilities that's what i want to see and i can tell you like again as a lifelong learner who is like failing my way forward through all of this 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. You know, we haven't seen that class work at all yet. But we have built these beautiful relationships and we have had people like have these aha moments and they felt a part of our community. And so it hasn't met our goal, which is like the biggest goal in the world, breaking generational poverty. (laughs) But (laughs) to say it's not effective is like stupid metrics. Like we have folks that are becoming part of a community and getting poured into and and we're affirming them every single week saying like, listen, you have what it takes because God built you and God loves you and you have the power of the Holy spirit. You have gifts and skills and you're capable. And so like, well, that's a win in itself. But yeah, at the end of the day, uh, the most practical person in the world, me is still like, can't, can't we help people be less poor though? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not in a, we'd like you to have a nicer car. No, I want him to have the things he needs. Food. Right. Yeah. Shelter. Yeah. Security. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Ah, oh, man. Well, and I think about the way that you try to think about success or goals, if you were to start interacting with, you know, foster care and kids that live in a group home, you know, like I have, you know, my son is in seventh grade and I have very particular like expectations and, and thoughts about his life and things that I want to help him do. And I have to be careful about that, you know, but when I, when I think about, I mean, I just don't want to like put too much pressure on, well, we could do a whole other episode <laughs> on parenting. Let's just stop there. But, but I, but I think, you know, like the expectations and the way that we think about success or goals and what that would look like for kids that live in a group home in foster care, like they're playing with different cards. And so how do we do that? I mean, you, Ben Connor from Western Seminary, I've quoted this a few times on the podcast already, but you know, I, I sat in on a lecture that he gave on youth ministry and he said, youth ministry at its worst is seeking to create sober virgins who go to college. And that's been a really helpful little catchphrase in my classes here at Flagler. But, um, you know, like, gosh, when you have the wrong goals in mind, you do some really stupid things. And so talk to me about, you know, if a church or if a youth ministry was going to try and move towards kids that live in a group home that are in foster care, what do they think about? I mean, like, it, it might not be attendance on Wednesday nights, the mission trip, you know, memorize a whole bunch of Bible verses or something like, you know, whatever. Like, how do you think about what faithfulness or, or what the goal is? That's or is a, that even the right question? I don't know. You know, to me, any question that helps people move towards trying to do something on the margins is a good question. You know, if, if in all of this process we had a lot of people involved in youth ministry who think really hard about the margins and then carry on, well, then to me, that's a waste of time. I'd rather have people jump in thoughtfully and start to figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, to me, a first step is if you feel like your church community is being called to folks on the margins, put a name on it. Like, who are we talking about? And then do anything in the world to start building relationships in those communities. And, and as you build those relationships, you'll get a better sense of what the actual needs are and who the people are and how the gears fit together. And then you'll know kind of what you might do. You know, like if you start with a structure or a program or a plan, it's not bad, but you're likely to be disappointed. But if you start with the sense of calling to a people group mm-hmm. and then start building relationships, it's going to be slow going, but you'll you'll probably be doing uh, deeper work ultimately. Yeah. I think that's especially yeah. complicated, though, when it comes to foster care because – and I don't have an answer for this question. If anybody out there has an answer to this question, send it. How do you do good, deep relational ministry when you don't know how long you'll know a kid for? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, the the only thing I've seen that has been sort of enticing in that way is uh, that that group in Austin, Texas, where they they match up a mentor with a foster kid and they follow the kid from one placement to the next, to the next group home, back to a placement, back to their family, whatever. And there it's a partnership of a handful of churches working with the, the, you know, DCF office in the County there. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, that to me has been the only way to sort of create continuity. Cause you know, I mean, as a foster parent myself, like we're aware of a handful of kids that we've had placed in our home and we haven't seen them. And, and our, our town is small, you know, like they've come and they've gone and they've gone back home. Then they were pulled back out, yeah. placed back with another foster care family, you know? So there are, yeah, I, I have no clue how to think about long-term relationships when the reality for kids in foster care is just so transient. Sure. Um, yeah. And I think one thing that we tell uh, when we try to kind of recruit or, or talk to people who are interested in foster care there's, there's so many things that are outside of our control, you know, like, especially in this community more than anything else, you know, there's, there's a lot more you can't control than you can. And so if we know that we're called to this work and reaching out to kids uh, who just need help in a family, we can say like, I will do everything I can for the amount of time that I've been given and I'll see how long that time lasts and whether or not that's a good strategy, I don't know, but it, it at least starts us at a place that, that's realistic to say, you know, if the Lord puts this kid in front of our, our student ministry for two years before he has to go live with his auntie in Jersey or whatever, we're going to do everything we can from the day he arrives to the day that he moves on. Because we, outside of that, you know, it's outside of our control. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, Tyler. Find the answer to this, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is no joke. Like I'm a relatively easygoing guy, but like these these are the sort of questions that keep me up at night. Like all I want is to solve poverty and for every kid to have a family. Is that so difficult? I mean, I know that we should just laugh right now because the alternative would be to cry. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, I guess we've both done both. You know, I mean, it just yeah. is gut wrenching and. Uh-huh. You know, as a, you know, like I mentioned, Bethany and I are foster parents as well. And, you know, those days that we go to family court to have a judicial review or whatever of our, our, you know, foster kids who are placed with us at the time, sitting in that courtroom, watching these families uh, be systematically taken apart by their situations and their decisions and their circumstances, it's gut-wrenching and it's horrible. And at the same time, I just, I, I feel so deeply convicted like where the hell is the church <laughs> uh-huh where's the church you know and as someone who's deeply committed and loves the church i feel like we have to say well then we have to run right into the middle of that house that's on fire uh with these families because you know who else will and and i don't know I, it makes me feel frantic you know like yeah yeah oh just drives me nuts yeah and so, you know, I, but the problem is, you know, this is one of those moments where our mutual friend Sheldon sort of says, yeah, that's great. You can be a foster parent, but you've got to run upstream and, and find who's throwing these kids into the river. Like the systems and structures at play uh-huh. uh, that are creating this scenario are, are really problematic, which is political and economical. And, you know, there's a thousand implications. Yeah. Um, but I think what I've heard you say in, in this conversation is, Yes, that's true, and we need to deal with all those things, but start somewhere and yeah. start by listening, getting mm-hmm. to know people. Mm-hmm. And if we, you know, if we, if we truly believe 
that the the body of Christ is built in such a way that everybody has their own skills and interests and gifts that they bring to make us work more fully. You know, I'm glad that we have people that are trying to change policy uh, that's helpful for kids, but that's not ever going to be who I am. I want to be, you know, in the trenches with a kid, even if I'm not fixing a system. But at the same time, I also want people who are not like me doing this other yeah. stuff upstream. We, I want everybody doing everything. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, there are churches who, um, a mile down the road from their church, there's a group home mm-hmm. and there's eight, you know, high school aged boys living in that group home who statistically speaking are not going to be adopted mm-hmm. and they don't have a family or their family that they do have is sort of broken apart in a number of different ways. Uh-huh. And the church has to begin to imagine being a place where those kids can belong mm-hmm. or you know, and I think about your experience when you started while you were a college student, you know, here's a, a nice little private liberal arts college and three miles down the road, there's a trailer park that you would drive into to pick up kids and, and bring them to the youth ministry that you were a part of. And, you know, so like there has to be ways to begin to imagine walking alongside, not fixing because fixing is, it just seems like a, a fool's errand in some ways. And at the same time, we want to do some of that, but the goal can't be to you know lead with a program in in an effort to fix. It has to be like you've been saying throughout this whole conversation to get to know and to listen. And I think that that seems to me that's the beginning of what it means to love would be to listen and to acknowledge the person. And then as you're walking alongside one another, you look for ways to be for one another. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That'll preach. Um, <laughs> That'll preach. <laughs> Well, hold on. Let me write it down. Then. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> oh, good. We're recording this. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, that begs the metrics question as well. Uh, you know, you, you talk about this program in Austin that tries to, that or that, that follows foster kids home to home with mentors. To pull that off, you're talking about dozens of volunteers and a few staff oh. people dedicated just to knowing where a single kid is. You know, that's not the sort of numbers we see playing out in typical youth ministries where a single healthy adult right. can, you know, be a, a fantastic relational minister to like, I don't know, three to eight kids, depending on like context and need. Those numbers just won't apply when you're working in these difficult situations. Right. Well, I think that's absolutely the truth. I mean, this is why it's so hard to, uh, well, this is why the this is like a new idea or a a sort of a, a new initiative for a lot of churches to even think about this is because it's, it's inefficient. Um, the success rate is probably low uh-huh. um, by their historical metrics, you know, and, and what, you know, maybe whoever the people are that need to hear the, the results or whatever. But I mean, the, why then Tyler, give us a theological rationale. Why should we still do it when it's going to take more resources, cost more money, move slower, take more time, Mm -hmm. and probably not work. Yeah, because, you know, is our call as ministers of the gospel to do the most efficient work? You know, like, I feel like that's like a reverse theological question. Somebody's going to need to show me where the Lord is like, uh, use as few resources as possible to reach as many people as possible. And that is what this is all about. Um, (laughs) You know, it's funny, like, as I say that, yeah, it's still appealing to me. That that's such a clean <laughs> idea. Yeah, if only people were involved. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, let me. I'm going to circle back to that though, because I do think there's a practical church question embedded in there that's worth going back to. Okay. But if we're if you want to talk theology, why would you do this work that's difficult and has a low success rate by traditional measures and and very resource intensive by cash and and volunteers? I mean, I think the answer is that there's no way you can take the whole biblical narrative seriously without seeing that God over and over and over turns his people outwards towards the people on the margins, right? And so, you know, like, I don't know how how, how long we want to spend on this, but, you know, like, when I think about the, the narrative of the Bible as a whole, which I know not everybody loves the idea of a single story in the Bible, but if you just play it loose, right? right. You have God, God builds a world where every person has access to everything they need, and that's, like, the way it's designed, that... Uh, you know, relationships are beautiful and right and healthy and holy between people and between God. There is work even before sin, but like there's equal access. Everybody can have all that they need because that's the way God built the world. You know, that falls apart immediately. Uh, and then you have the whole rest of the Bible story. Constantly, God is turning God's people back out to say, like, there are still people who don't have what they need. And so you have like uh, places in the, in the in the Levitical Code, the law where yeah, you know, you have to leave parts of your field because you know there are people that need food. Those people, that's your responsibility to help them have what they need if they don't have it. Um, you know, like the same thing if you're in terms of violence, you have like cities of refuge where, you know, vengeance has to stop somewhere. So we're putting these, these people who are kind of pushed down on the side. They need a safe place to stay. That's going to be built into the code. And you have that over and over all the way through the law. And then you have Jesus kind of modeling a ministry where it's just pointed at outsiders, you know. The scariest thing to me about the gospel narratives is that I am not like the woman who used her perfume to anoint Jesus. And I'm not like the outcast that got chosen to be disciples. I'm the religious elite that mm-hmm. that make the rules at the church that Jesus is constantly going after. Uh, there's no way to look at Jesus's ministry and not see that it's always oriented towards people who have been pushed out, even pushed out by the church. And so... You know, if we're going to take the model of Jesus seriously, even we who are the church have to say, like, okay, where have we missed people that God cares about? Let's go get there, you know? Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to open wow. up the altars. Can I get some yeah. uh, piano music going? <laughs> Time for an offering. <laughs> no, but I do want to say this is <laughs> – I'm fundamentally practical. It's it's just who I am. I can't not be. That's um, why I call you my pragmatic friend. <laughs> that's right. Yes. That's Go why I, within three seconds of listening to any story, I can tell you exactly what you should do because that's how good of a listener I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. Um, but I do say, you know, all of that, the theology stuff that I just outlined, I think it's true and it's faithful to the Bible. But there's still a pragmatic question for the church to answer, like, well, how do we do this? Um, and I think in the missions world, most churches have missions. We can talk about missions as like general outreach, or you can say in this context, missions is looking for people who are overlooked and ignored or at the margins. So that's what we're talking about right now when we say missions. In the missions world, uh, I think what the church has a tendency to do is to just chase any idea that's in front of them until they feel disappointed in it or until they run out of money or until like the volunteer who cared about it quits and then move on. And so I think, I don't think honestly that most churches 
don't want to reach out to people at the margins. I think that they just have been wildly uh, without strategy, you know, really just kind of like, well, we, we give a little bit of money to the soup kitchen. I'm sure the soup kitchen does good work. And we're also thinking about starting a recovery ministry. And, and also we, have, we feed people from our very front door or whatever. And all of those things are good, but the, any, not, the, not the church globally, but any single body of the church, you know, like your representation of, of the church globally, your Presbyterian church or Methodist church or Catholic church or whatever you go to, the place you meet to worship has to find out what need they can meet and then go hard for that. And if we're, if we, again, if we believe in the body of Christ, and I believe that the Baptist church that's literally like, I can see them from my window right now in my office. If I believe that God has called them to do really great ministry to folks with special needs or really great ministry to teenagers incarcerated in in the um, juvenile justice system, I want to celebrate that. And I want to say like, I thank God that God has called them and sent them and equipped them. But I also know like in my context, I feel strongly that we need to be going as hard as we can go uh, for foster care and, and, and these kids who are uh, without families and without stable housing. I don't honestly think that my, I, again, I'm in a, a mega church. We have tons of money. I'm a full-time missions pastor. Right. I still don't believe that we could feasibly do good ministry in all of the places represented, even by this missing voices project. Right. I have to believe that God is going to call us to something that we can do well long-term and trust that God will call other people to do those other things. Right. Not that's not a cop out. You no, know, I want no. everybody doing a part, but I just know in my heart of hearts that the more we all try to meet every need, the less we're going to do for any of it. Well, and I've watched you over the years at your church be the guy who has just killed one program after another in order to focus resources. Yeah. And so you're not just saying that you're you're one of these people at a complicated large system in terms of your church that has had really great intentions to do a lot of different things. And they were probably a mile wide and an inch deep. And you started just saying, we're going to, we're going to kill this thing that we've done for 10 years that a lot of people love in order to focus more resources and more effort into this other thing over here so that we could be more faithful and effective in that space. Yeah. And that's not, uh, is it like an act of cynicism at all? Like, well, we can celebrate what God has done through a million different things. But at the same time, if we're not strategic and focused, it's very hard to do well anything that God has called us to do. Right. Okay. So in the interest of time and, and sort of landing the plane here, I, I feel like I've heard you say a couple of things here. Like one, don't let the distance between you and the people that you want to love and serve scare you away. Uh, just take a step in that direction and start by listening and getting to know others. Um, another thing I've heard you say just now is that we need to be focusing on you know the one or two things that we have been given and sort of trust, have a maybe a hopeful optimism about the church that God is calling uh, the body of Christ in different ways to, you know, be a part of the kingdom of God as it's as it's unfolding before us, and that that would be not a cop out, but truly an interdependence on yeah. the body of Christ in your communities. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is just like this uh, dogged commitment to justice and the experience of Christ in those places. Yeah, I feel like you just nailed me. <laughs> 
That's I like, feel like I know you, Tyler. Yeah. You just <laughs> outlined, like, my heart of hearts. The things that keep me up at night are all encompassed in those uh, short summary phrases. Anything you want to say? Any closing comments or thoughts or stories that you want to share? You know, you have this youth minister who's listening to this, and they're, they're, like, their heart is racing because they know the thing that they're supposed to go do. They, and they're also scared. And they, maybe they should be. You know, yeah, yeah. Like they probably should be. Otherwise, it would be like this naive sort of thing. So uh, that person's listening right now. What do you want to say to them? You know, like by, by way of benediction, yes. if, a, uh, if, if there's a person listening who knows they have some sense of calling to folks on the margin, they can kind of see it like in this, in this peripheral vision in their context right now. I would just say lean in hard to this thing God has called you to do. Start somewhere, you know, uh, measure your expectations so that you can do long-term work without burning out or getting disappointed and just go at it, you know, go at it every day with relationships, with listening, uh, and -hmm. continue to grow until you've got a thing. Yeah. If God has called you, God is capable of bringing your people alongside and doing faithful, great work. Yeah. And I would want to add to that you know, open your eyes, open your ears, open your heart with a hopeful anticipation that you will experience the risen Christ, the risen Christ in these people that we're talking about. This young person that you feel called to that's right before you or or that kid in a group home or whatever. It's scary to think about this new idea or this new place or this new thing. But our, our trust, our hope is that Christ is already there, gone ahead of us, uh, and inviting us to participate in God's work in that place. So, man, the, how about a little tag team benediction? That's right. Amen. Come on. Come Where's on. Where's the offering plates at? Yeah, let's get a second round of that. Let's get another, <laughs> another offering. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so, you know, if you if you love reading and you want to kind of go deeper on some of these general issues, uh, a lot, the vast majority of what our church does as it relates to poverty is guided by the principles that you see in books like uh, when Helping Hurts by uh, Stephen Corbett or Toxic Charity, uh, we use a lot as well. Uh, those books, if you look at the end notes in those books, there's a thousand other references that are good. But they're a good yeah, kind yeah. of uh, introduction to the ideas of faithful ministry uh, that, that's empowering to people in poverty. We love that stuff. Um, if you want to really get your butt kicked and uh, feel <laughs> feel compelled to do good partly by guilt, I really love a guy named Peter Singer, S-I-N-G-E-R. Uh, he wrote The Life You Can Save, uh, The Most Good You Can Do, Wealth, Affluence, and Poverty. Uh, he's like a, a, a ethicist, philosophy and, and ethics, and he's just trying to outline uh, kind of the the moral underpinnings of why and how to live a proper ethical life. Super great mm-hmm. stuff, pretty accessible. And then for foster care, there's this whole world of, of parenting strategies that also apply very directly to volunteering with kids who have had traumatic backgrounds. If you want to find all of the resources in the world about that, we love this organization called Empowered to Connect that has a website. Um, On their website, they've got videos and simulcasts and books. Um, But the bottom line as it relates to Empowered to Connect is all of the relational tools that apply to kids from kind of uh, typical backgrounds don't always apply to kids from traumatic backgrounds. So that can kind of raise your awareness on that sort of stuff. Excellent. Have you read Evicted by Matthew Desmond? No. 
You think you need to look it up. One of the other conversations I had, uh, he's another Princeton guy uh, along with, is it Peter Singer at Princeton? He's a Princeton guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this guy, Matt Matt Desmond, is there as well. But um, man, like I've heard amazing things about this book. Essentially, it's about the experience of living on the edge of eviction in and out all the time. Yeah, they did an NPR segment on it. Now that you outlined the content, I did hear about it. Yep, yeah, that might be something else to add. So I'm gonna order that in about poverty. six seconds when I can type again. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's it's a, it's called "Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City" by Matthew Desmond. So, oh, you know what? Let me let me throw one more in. Okay, this is a caveat here. I have not read this, but oh. uh, my wife is reading two books that are biographies of people who grew up in the foster care system that for her have been unbelievably helpful because wow. that is, that is the missing voice itself, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One of them is called three little words. And there's a follow-up called three more words. And that's kind of a biography. And then there's a new one called cinder girl, cinder as in like uh, C I N D E R. And that's like okay. someone who has some sort of like, maybe she's a pageant person or someone who's kind of like rose to some level of notoriety who's talking about her own background in, in the foster care system. And so if you want to hear the voices directly, those are two good resources for that that are also very, very readable. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tyler. I hope that we get to um, share this with a bunch of folks, but I also hope that in about a year's time, I get to come back to you with some really fun stories about churches that are uh, making their own blunders uh, <laughs> sure. in this space. Uh-huh. and um, but, but trying and, and learning and growing and, uh, and and moving towards uh, kids that are sort of within poverty, but also maybe within the foster care system as well. So yeah. appreciate your time. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, I, this is the thing that I care about most in the world. So if, if I myself can be a resource, make me a resource. You know, like but my email address is T Uh-oh. as in Tyler Fuller, F-U-L-L-E-R at crosspoint.church. I also have a blog. It's called unremarkable conjecture if you google it you'll see it's it hilarious but i write tons about foster care and, and how we do ministry with the poor and then i also write stuff that's uh unrelated <laughs> excellent yeah <laughs> yes like your favorite rap albums from the late 90s i do yeah yes yeah that's good awesome well thank you tyler i appreciate it man and uh we'll talk to you soon yeah that was fun see you dude All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices Project. You can learn more about what we are up to at missingvoices.flagler.edu. That's missingvoices.flagler.edu. I want to thank Noble Media for their production of the podcast and Troy Aragon Buchanan for the original music. We believe there are good and wonderful gifts to be enjoyed and voices to be lifted up and heard that exist at the margins of society and the church. I hope today's conversation might just push you to keep these young people in mind. What if your youth ministry made room for the kids we talked about today? Until next time, be well.